after having those conversations with him, was it surprising to you that it ended the way that it did? In my first conversation with him, he spoke of himself in a, a third person past tense. <laughs> everyone, welcome to the Loopcast, where we talk faith, culture, and politics from a Catholic perspective. Today, I have kind of a unique interview. I am talking to an interviewer himself, and I'm a little bit nervous because he's a little bit of a veteran, so maybe he could give me some tips at the end. Today, I'm talking to Charlie Serafin. He is a news radio veteran, former VP of marketing and sales at the Texas Rangers and the Kansas City Royals, author of two books. There's not much this guy hasn't done. I'm really looking forward to hearing about it all. Thank you for coming on. My pleasure. Thank you, Tom. Of course. So you took time. I mean, you recorded radio this morning, so this is kind of a, a double header for you, as you say. But um, one thing that I'm just really curious about, just take me to the beginning. How did you get into radio? When did that become kind of an interest for you? Well, when I was a kid, I um, my dad died at an early age and my mother, we ran a mom and pop grocery store and she sold the grocery store and we moved into a little house in town, which was a small town in northern Wisconsin. And exploring, I went up into my bedroom and there was a little tiny trap door. I opened the trap door and shined a flashlight into the attic. And besides cobwebs, I saw copper wire that was strung under the eaves back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And the entire underside of the attic was an antenna. And I had an old Zenith radio. So I ran a lead wire from the back of the radio into this antenna. And I was the only kid in northern Wisconsin that was listening to radio stations all over the country, KDKA in Pittsburgh, if you can believe that, from northern Wisconsin, KOMA, Oklahoma City, um, and on and on. So, and all the Chicago stations, WLS, WCFL. So, at age 12, I became a fan of radio, and I, I listened to the all, I turned the dial very slowly and listened to as many stations as I could, and I can always tell the small market stations from the big city stations because they had much more professional announcers, and I started imitating them. So then, two years later, when I was 14, I got a, a, an invitation to be a participant in a radio program, which was called This Week at Your Rhinelander Union High School, and I was the representative for the incoming freshman class. I went on the program. It was a half-hour interview kind of show, and, and afterwards, the general manager said, gee, you did really well. Are you interested in radio? And I said, oh, yes, sir. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to be in radio at age 14. And so he said, well, we can't pay you, but you're welcome to hang around, sweep the floors. So I did that for a couple of months, swept the floors and watched everything. I learned all of the tricks of the, of the trade of radio. And then the nighttime disc jockey got drafted to go to Vietnam. And surprisingly enough, they couldn't find anybody to come to town that would work for $2 an hour in the middle of the frozen tundra in the middle of the winter when it was 30 below zero. <laughs> and so he said, hey, could you pull some extra hours here? We could start to pay you. And so after school or basketball practice or, you know, baseball practice, I was going into the radio station and I worked on weekends and whatnot. And so by the time I graduated high school, I had four years professional experience and worked through college and and went to the big time after that. Yeah, that's a huge advantage. And we have people listening from all over the country, so I have to ask, do you have any favorites from your childhood that you actually imitated when you started doing radio? Well, yeah, there was a radio guy named Lyle Dean out of Chicago, and he was on WLS, and he had these great pipes, which I've never had, but he, he <laughs> just, he, uh, he 
spoke in a really deep voice, and he was had a really unique writing style because back in the day, and this, we're talking about the 1960s, most of the people were doing what we call rip and read. So they would go to the teletype, they would rip off the AP or the United Press International wire copy, take it into the studio, turn the microphone on and read the news. But Lyle Dean rewrote his newscasts in a really provocative kind of way. You know, it was really interesting in how he used uh, his vocabulary and his intellect and whatnot. And uh, so he was my hero for a long time. Yeah. And also, as you're kind of observing, and you said you had that wealth of experience kind of earlier than most people do, what did you kind of observe were some keys to a good interview and good investigative journalism, as it were? So uh, provocative questions, getting good answers, that kind of stuff. Yeah, I think um, I was friends with Larry King back in the day when he was on radio before he went on to television and became a national figure on CNN. And Larry always said, you, uh, people go into interviews and sometimes they write about 10 or 12 questions, you know, and they go like number one, number two, number three. And he said, I never do that. I always take my, my second question always comes from the first answer. And I think that's a really interesting thing because it forces you to be an active listener and really pay attention to your guest. And so he would only have one or two questions. And, but his, his follow-up questions were, and the other thing is we have tendencies and we all do this to uh, show the audience how smart we are by asking really long involved questions like, well, I know you did this and I know you did that. And then when you were there, you did this and that and a little bit. And pretty soon we're doing this soliloquy, right? And instead of doing that, he kept his uh, questions really short and to the point to put the spotlight on the interviewee as opposed to the interviewer. So I thought that was really important. The other thing that um, from a journalistic standpoint, when I was a newsman and when I ran news organizations, I always told people that we, were, we should be issue-oriented. We should really look at the big picture and not just be ambulance chasers. And when I was coming up in the media and radio news, and I, worked, I ran the news department at KCBS in San Francisco for California viewers, they know it's a big news talk station. We had 50 journalists working in the newsroom. I told them, I don't want to do the police blotter. I don't want to do the, you know, the fire blotter. Once in a while, if there's a huge fire or something that affects the neighborhood, yeah, we have to make mention of it. But I'd really like to get into the issues and talk about the why of not just who, what, when, and where, but the why of what's going on. And we had a wonderful group of, uh, at the time, young, relatively young journalists who really bought into the idea. And the other thing that was fun, because it was commercial radio, is it became enormously successful in a commercial sense. So our ratings were fantastic, which meant that our revenues were fantastic, which meant that corporate was happy. And we, we were able to do some things that most of the news stations in America at the time were not doing. Right. And what were some of your favorite stories? You said you had a really talented newsroom and you guys were successful. What were some of the favorite things that you got to cover? We had a situation long before Amber Alerts where a little boy who actually, I, I, as memory serves me, and I could be wrong, but I believe he was walking home from a Catholic school in San Francisco and was kidnapped on the street and taken away. And it was a, you know, a citywide search and, a, and it became a, a, a statewide search and whatnot. And um, unfortunately, the child disappeared and was never found. But the parents of that uh, child, because of the nature of what we did, and they could tell that we were thoughtful thinking people, not just 
uh, guys running around with microphones or women running around with microphones sticking in people's faces trying to get that hot hit, right? And they invited one of our reporters, uh, a guy named Steve Little, who's just a wonderful human being, into their home and really shared their their feelings and their spirituality and their prayerfulness. And, and it was a, it was the coverage of that story for us was so different than what anybody else, the newspapers or TV stations were doing. And that always uh, struck me that we were, we had touched a sensitive chord because I believe that, um, I believe there are a lot of good people in the listening audience and a lot of intelligent people. And they, they were, they were yearning for something more but I don't think they could have articulated it, but we found a way to deliver it. So, so the yearning for something more, I, I'm, I'm trying to find the right way to put this into words, but the phenomenon you're describing of chasing ambulances, and maybe today it would be called like rage clicks or a tabloid type content, people still do that, right? There's still a, a vast majority of the internet that makes their money that way. But you could say there maybe are some sources that try to do what you're describing. Do you think that the internet has increased the volume of people that maybe go that direction? Or has that always been around just in different formats? I think it has probably increased the volume. I, I, um, I'm i not I, a statistical expert, so I can't tell you how many people are doing it the right way or how many are still going for that quick hit in the in the most sensational way. But I think that because there are so many more people involved in information gathering now than there were when there were only a select group of people who were, you know, we had radio stations, television stations, and newspaper wire services, but that's a relatively small world. Today, pretty much anybody who has a fascination or an interest in trying to do something uh, meaningful in a journalistic way has access. And, you know, th there are a lot of people who are operating on their own just as independents and they start, you know, putting out their podcasts or their blogs. And, and I, so I think it's, I think we're, we're getting, a, th that's the good news and the bad news. The, the good news is that there are more people doing it. The bad news is there's so much information out there that it's virtually impossible for any one person to be able to get, um, to grasp you know, they go to their favorites, but they're, they're not necessarily getting everything that's out there that's meaningful. Yeah. And one thing that I always have debates on with people who are a little bit older is they have this trust of, say, mainstream, big J journalism institutions that I just never had because I always grew up in an internet era. I've only ever known the internet, which is probably kind of crazy for you to hear, but it's the truth. I've only ever known journalism in the age of the internet. Do you think that what you're describing is better or worse? Do you think that people are able to ascertain the truth better now or the truth was always a little bit subjective, but it was just enforced by major conglomerates at the time? No, I, I'm not sure that it, it was any better in the old days. Um, and, I, and I can't really say whether or not people are better informed now, but one of the things, and, and all your older listeners will remember that Walter Cronkite was the primary source of news in America. He was a CBS Evening News anchor. I worked for CBS for 10 years. I knew Walter Cronkite and Dan Rather and all the people who worked there. Charlie Osgood was a friend and an uh, awesome person. But Walter Cronkite, we used to close his newscast by saying, and that's the way it is, November 22nd, 1963, <laughs> right? And that was his signature sign-off. And I, I actually took a year off in the 1970s and went and lived on an island in Spain 
to write a book, which I threw away because after a while I realized I'm just spinning in circles here, but it was called <laughs> The Big Lie. And it, The Big Lie involved that uh, pretentiousness of saying, we're going to take a half hour television news broadcast and tell you everything that you need to know and everything that's really important because you can't do it. There's so much going on in the world that you could never, you could stay tuned for 24 hours, seven days a week, and still not even scratch the surface of what's going on out there because there's a lot. And so I was always concerned. The other thing, which I hope you'll find interesting, is I think journalism schools, even back in uh, the, maybe starting in the 60s and 70s, I'm not sure when journalism became, you know, the uh, high point in academia, but they, they taught the concept of objectivity. And they said, we're going to anoint you as a journalism graduate, and now you are objective. And that's another big lie. It just doesn't work. Everybody is subjective. When I train young reporters, I would tell them, look, you're not objective. Don't pretend to be objective. You are very subjective, depending on where you were born and where your, what your background is and your experiences that you've had and your parents and your politics and your religion and all those things. You're not objective at all. You're very subjective. So your goal is to be fair and decent and honest. And when you know that you're bringing a bias to a story, and that means pretty much every story, put your bias out in front of you. Take a look at it and then do everything you can to offset your bias by asking reasonable questions and, you know, not getting into advocacy journalism, which is what it's evolved into in mainstream journalism today. If you turn on the major networks, CBS that I used to work for, or ABC, NBC, CNN, MSNBC, Fox News, it doesn't matter. They're all doing the same thing. They're doing advocacy journalism because they have a point of view, they have a bias, and they're going to project their bias. And the thing is, it, the commercialization of the news business, which has always been commercial, newspapers, you know, they want to sell newspapers, so they put the right. most graphic stories on the front page that they could to sell the paper. But it, the economics of it have dictated that if you can tap into an underserved market and give that market what they want, which is your bias, then uh, knock yourself out and here you go. So it's the whole concept of journalism is really kind of twisted and not, not necessarily in a good way. Yeah, that's really interesting advice, I think, for the Internet age of journalism and things to, to think about for sure. One question that I have to ask, because when I was kind of researching a little bit, I know you said, don't do this, don't do this, but I need to ask. You spent some time in Dallas and the David Koresh branch, not, oh, I was about to say Covidians. Oh my gosh. Uh, branch Davidians. Uh-huh. Uh, that was going on while you were at the station. And I believe you actually had a conversation with David Koresh. Can yeah. you please run us through how that all came about and how that conversation happened? Um, I was a vice president general manager of KRLD, which is the big news talk station. It's now a part of the CBS-owned family, was a CBS affiliate at the time. I had worked for CBS previously, so that's why they recruited me to come there with a news background to try to, you know, help resurrect this giant. And it was David Koresh's favorite radio station, and he was the leader of the Branch Davidians and... Um, he grew up in Garland, Texas, which is where the KRLD transmitter is. So he probably uh, listened to it through his electric toothbrush if he had one. Um, <laughs> but um, he, he called into the station. And in the very beginning, he, he called the station to ask if the station would announce a ceasefire with the ATF because the ATF had uh, 
started a raid, uh, shot through the door, and killed a couple people, wounded a couple people, and agents were shot. And so both sides wanted a, a, a break in the action, if you will, you know, uh, a ceasefire, because the, there were agents that were wounded and were bleeding outside, and there were people inside that were concerned, a lot of women and children and whatnot. So he called the station and said, will you announce a ceasefire? We did that. We accommodated him. And then later in the evening, um, his right-hand man, Steve Schneider, called into the radio station. And I talked to him off the air for a very long time and tried to ask him questions and whatnot. And then finally, he got David to come on. And we were able to help with the release of 18 children that night by reading what Koresh uh, gave us through the ATF. And it was a kind of a quasi-biblically-sounding gibberish. That's all, the only way I can really describe it. It wasn't biblical, but it was David Koresh's version of the seven seals. And so we had the short thing, and I read it. And when I read it, he released two children. And so we ran it, it we recorded it and ran it every 15 minutes uh, that night. And uh, so nine different times he released two kids at a time in the back of government limousines, and they drove out, and the TV cameras were there. And when he goes back and watches the documentaries, he, they can see it. But um, so we were kind of uh, intimately involved. But my first conversation with him was off the air for an extensive period of time. And he was, um, he was deranged. And that's all I can say. He, he was not in charge of his mental faculties. He was all over the place. And he really thought he was the second coming of Christ and that he was the Messiah. And then the, the next time um, that I spoke with him, we, we put him on the air for a short period of time, and he did uh, similar stuff. And so it went on, the siege went on, and we were, the radio station was intimately involved in, the, in that whole debacle. After having those conversations with him, was it surprising to you that it ended the way that it did? Did you no. see that coming or sense something bad yeah, was no, happening? No, no, I saw, I knew it was coming. In my first conversation with him, he spoke of himself in the third person past tense. Uh, you know, they shall eat of the flesh of the lamb and stuff like that. And I mean, he was suicidal. And I couldn't say that publicly because they were listening to us inside. So I, I remember I did. <laughs> this is close. I, I didn't. Uh, I've never confessed it in a confessional, but I've thought about it on a number of times. But um, uh, I was on the Today Show with Bryant Gumbel two days in a row, and he kept asking me, you know, what's his state of mind? You know, what do you think of it? And I couldn't say he's nuttier than a fruitcake. This guy is suicidal. <laughs> you know, I, I just I wasn't comfortable saying anything like that. So I said, well, he's, yeah. you know, he's a very complex character, and he has a lot to say, and. You know, he's got a message, definitely. <laughs> and so, yeah. Uh, but I was fudging because I didn't want to, I didn't want to, you know, say something and then look up at the TV camera and see the place going up in flames, which it ultimately did. So, yeah. Well, you've made the confession in the Loopcast confessional. So, I oh. uh, will give you a pass. There you Another go. Another story I have, I have to ask. I saw that you received an invite to the White House from the one and only President Ronald Reagan. Is this true? Yes. Why? So did you expect that invite? Was it for an award or something? Or is it out of the blue? Was that a surprise to you to be invited? I thought it was a joke. <laughs> I got a telegram <laughs> and it said, Nancy and I request the pleasure of your company at lunch on such and such a date at the White House. Please call this number to RSVP. And a telegram. I think it's the only telegram I've ever gotten in my life. And I got it at, in the newsroom at KCBS. So I, I took the, the uh, I, I took the, the paper into my my boss and I said, hey boss, I just got invited to go to the White House. What do you think? And he went, oh, by all means, yeah, definitely do that. 
So I called the number back and I was shocked when she said White House. And I said, well, I've got this telegram here. And she said, just a moment, I'll get you to his appointment secretary. And so I went through and, and yes, I went to Washington. I lined up and what I found, and this is the fascinating thing. This is a, you're breaking news here, right? Because a lot of people have never heard this story, but it's, it's really interesting. Yeah. What, Ronald Reagan was a conservative. And yet his popularity numbers across the board were always relatively high. He had a great um, appeal to the American people, even those who were not his political fans, if you, if you want to say that. And what I was, I was a part of a program where he invited two uh, people from the news industry to the White House every month for eight years. There were a hundred of us when I was there and I didn't know that I was part of anything. I just got an invitation like everybody else. So I'm standing in line to go into the executive office building and we went out to a little theater. And when we came into the theater and it was really intimate, it probably seated 120 people and there were a hundred people there. The first person that came out was a member of the cabinet. Second person, another member of the cabinet, third person, another member of the cabinet. We got a chance to ask questions of every single member of the Reagan cabinet. The last one to come out was Vice President Bush. He came out, said, I'm a little jet lagged. I just got back from China. You know, questions. Da, da, da. We could not record the questions, but we could take notes. And there was no photography. And so we, but we had a chance to do a debrief with every member of the cabinet. And the person next to me, I remember it was a woman. I said, hi, where are you from? And she said, Des Moines. And I said, Des Moines, Iowa. And she said, yeah. And I said, well, what do you do? She says, I work for the Register. I'm a reporter. And the next guy was a television news director from Utah or Wyoming or whatever. So it was people from all over the country that came into the Reagan uh, White House. So we did that briefing in the executive office building, went through the tunnel, came up into the White House, went past the honor guard, all the, the nicest looking people in America, young men and women in their, in their dress whites, walked through them, went into the, the room and sat down and had a beautiful lunch. And then the president got up and he made some remarks. And then we got a chance to ask him questions, same deal. And then we had photo ops afterwards. So I have a picture with President Reagan, you know, and, and I had known him in California when he was the governor and I was a reporter. And so I kind of, we joked a little bit and, and had a, a good time, but um, it was so incredible to me to find out later on. And I didn't find out for many years after that, that he had done it every month because I met the guy in Dallas who actually uh, spearheaded the program. And he sent out the invites. And the only rule was there were no reporters from Washington, D.C. and no reporters from New York City. So the, that, that press corps, that, that, that inside Washington press corps was excluded. But he got his message directly to the American people through members of the news media that were outside of the Beltway. So what was his message to everyone over those eight years? Why did he take the time to do that? It was, I don't know, but it sure worked. I mean, he, you know, <laughs> it, I, he got reelected in a landslide and, and um, yeah. it, you know, and people just, people felt closer to him because when you come away from something like that, and I wasn't necessarily a right or left leaning at that point, I think I, you know, I really worked hard to be as close to down the middle as I could be. And I wasn't a big fan of Reagan as a governor. I was very critical of him because he, he, I don't think he was a great governor, but I think he was a great president. And so when I came away from that thing, I just, you know, when you meet uh, the secretary of treasury and he's really candid and has a great sense of humor and, 
and you meet the Secretary of Defense and the Secretary of State, um, most of us never get those opportunities. We see them on television and we sort of get their, you know, a, a vision of them. But to see them in close quarters and be able to ask them hard questions and see how they react, that was powerful. So it left an impression, and I'm sure it did on the other 99 people who were there the month that I was there. And then you th multiply that 12 times a year over eight years, that's a lot of people that you're touching that are influencers and have the ability to bring that message back out to the American public. So why did you think Reagan was a bad governor but a good president? I mean, he was just all kind of all over the place. One, he he had come out of the union, right? So he um, he was a, the president of the Screen Actors Guild, and he had been a, re, a Democrat, and then he switched and became a Republican. And uh, I remember this is another funny little anecdote, which I've got too many of them, and I hope not to take up your time with them. But I asked him a question go at, for at a press conference one time, and it had something to do with the budget. They were they were squabbling over the budget in Sacramento, and I asked him a question about the budget. And he gave me an answer that had nothing to do with my question. And San Francisco at the time was a very polite media market. And everybody in the room heard what I asked him a question. He didn't answer it. He gave a different answer. It had nothing to do with what I asked him about. So I said, follow. <laughs> and everyone was polite. No one tried to shout a question because they were all kind of looking at me. I said, follow. I rephrased the question. It was the same question. He gave me another answer. It had nothing to do with the question. I asked, I said, and now that people, the, the press was kind of laughing. And I raised my hand a third time. I said, follow. And I asked the question like, a, like you'd ask a second grader, right? Real simple. And he gave a third answer that had nothing to do with the question. And the, but the point of it was the television cameras are running. They're, they're getting his 20-second answers, right? His sound bites were perfect to something that was not asked, but it was a point that he wanted to make. So I, that was my first exposure to being a, quote, spin doctor, and how there's a method to that, how you, how you do it. So I was like, oh, man, this guy's so frustrating. But again, uh, as president, I think he really stood up. And I think, he, I think he was really in touch with his moral compass when he got to that ultimate position of authority. And that made him a really strong president. Interesting. Now, speaking of moral compass, so as you know, Catholic Vote's been really involved in the Dodgers boycott uh, of the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence being honored. And you spent some time as an executive within both the Rangers and the Kansas City Royals. Mm -hmm. And were you always a sports fan? And was that always kind of uh, something in the back of your head? Like one day I really want to work for a sports team or how did that transition happen for you? When I was, a, it, 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 the radio thing was always a passion and I knew I was going to be on the radio, but my, in my heart of hearts, I always wanted to be a baseball, professional baseball player. I thought it was the coolest thing ever. And we can talk about that in a little bit, why people are attracted to baseball. I have a really unique theory. But anyway, I, I, I loved baseball. When I got the opportunity, former President Bush, actually, um, his ownership group called me and recruited me to work for the Rangers. So it was like a dream come true. And I went, oh, my goodness, yeah. I mean, I get to office at the ballpark, and how cool is that? And, and you know, be around the players and go behind the cage for batting practice. I had an all-access pass. I could go into the locker room, you know, <laughs> and hang out, you know, with everybody. And uh, so it was, it was really awesome. I think what's happened, and Rob Manfred is a friend. I've known him for many years. He's the commissioner of Major League Baseball. I think he's a good person. But I was first. I wrote it. He doesn't respond to me anymore because I wrote him a really nasty email after he canceled the All-Star game in Atlanta because of the, uh, of the uh, um, uh, 
legislation in Georgia having to do with voters' rights and voter integrity. And it was a knee-jerk thing, I thought, on his part, and they moved it from there up to Denver, I think, um, a couple of years ago. But I, I had heard since that he actually got a call from the president of the United States. And so I, I'm kind of empathetic toward him to say there's a lot of pressure on the commissioner of baseball if the president of the United States is saying, hey, I need you to do this, right, um, then he, he, I guess he felt a political obligation or whatever. But this whole, the, you know, the pride month and the pride games and all that, it's coming from the top because Major League Baseball is kind of pushing that down on your promotional calendar, but it's just not in keeping with what baseball is all about. Yeah, and it, uh, so I want to hear your theory on baseball first, but after that as well, the Rangers are the only team actually to not do a pride night. Every other team has done it. The Rangers will not. Did you see something in the character of the organization that would suggest that they wouldn't in the future while you were there, or is that a surprise to you as I well? I didn't know that. That's a surprise to me as you're telling me. I didn't know that. I was going to look it up myself, and I thought, no, nah, I don't even <laughs> want to know, but I'm really proud of them for not doing it. I think that's awesome it, because a lot of it has to do with the market. You know, in Dallas and Fort Worth and Arlington, which is where the ballpark is, is right between the two cities, it's a pretty conservative place, although the city of Dallas has become more and more liberal. But um, I, I just think that's awesome. I think it's really good that they stood up and they said, no, we're not going to do that. It's not, our, it's not what our fans want. It doesn't have anything to do with baseball. So my simple theory of baseball is, and I'll, I'm, I'll turn it back and I'll interview you. Do you remember your first Major League Baseball game? Of course. Yes. Okay. The person. Detroit, Detroit Tigers, Comerica Field. Okay. That was before. That was after, right after Old Tiger Stadium was turned on. Okay. Yeah. The person who took you to your first Major League Baseball game is someone who loved you. It's my dad. There yep. you go. And that's the same for all of us. It was your grandpa, your grandma, your dad, your mom, your brother, your sister, your uncle, your aunt, someone who loved you and had a passion for baseball, took you to a baseball game so you could see it. And that's the beauty of baseball. It's very different than the NFL, very different than the NHL, very different than the NBA. It's that family connection. And in that sense, you know, we used to say America's pastime. They've had a thousand slogans since then. But that's what the core of the baseball fandom is all about, is the people who exposed you to the game for the first time is a, was a love relationship. It was someone in your family, and it's universal. And as, when we were marketing in Texas and we were marketing in Kansas City, we always put that family focus first. I, I would say if I was in Major League Baseball, I maybe I would have been fired for it, which would have been fine, but I would have not participated because the, the whole gay pride uh, movement is the antithesis of family values, and it just doesn't belong. It has no place in the ballpark, and I think the Dodgers have learned that the hard way. Do you think that this has actually been a successful enough campaign to make the Dodgers pay attention at this point, or do you think that they're just kind of shrugging it off? I, don't th I think the Dodgers are definitely paying attention. I think they probably paid attention right from the get-go. But as I said, I think there probably was some pressure that came down from Major League Baseball, corporate New York City, right, um, right in the heart of the, of the liberal movement that said, well, everybody needs to schedule a gay pride day. It's just like everybody needs to schedule a Jackie Robinson day. And we retired his number, number 42, and you have to put it on your outfield wall and everybody wears a jersey with number 42 on it for that game. So there are some sort of like corporate mandates within the industry and the, I believe that gay, I'm, and I'm not involved in baseball anymore, you know, other than as a fan, but I believe that that's what happened is it came down 
and they did it. And then they thought, well, we're in LA and, you know, we have, everybody's cool and we're all good with everything. I don't think they were ready for the Catholic backlash and to say, no, stop. This is just, it's bad enough if you, if you want to give out little pride flags or something, but when you bring those kind of individuals in who are mocking, um, some of the most beautiful people on the planet, the, 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 all of the nuns that I've ever met are so devoted and so spiritual and such special people. It's just totally inappropriate. Yeah, and I, I know as well, you're also a man of faith and Catholic. When you first saw this happening, what was your gut reaction as soon as you saw it? I, 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 I pray that what would happen did happen. I pray that there would be enough people who would stand up and say, no, this is, you've gone over the line and we're not going to do it. And I, when I ran a radio station in Los Angeles, I actually, you know, I had season tickets. I had four season tickets to the Dodgers and it's a wonderful environment and the candy stripers and all the traditions. And I've known, you know, uh, everybody from Tommy Lasorda. I knew a lot of the people who were the traditional uh, Dodger uh, players and, and managers and front office people. And they were, they were cream of the crop. They were just, there was a Dodger way. They always talked about the Dodger way. It was better than everybody else. It was special. It's kind of like the pride that the Yankees have in New York. Uh, they just do things a little bit differently. They're really classy in their organizational structure. And this was, uh, this was not in keeping with what the expectation is for that brand. Did you know Vin Scully personally? Um, I met Vin Scully a couple of times, but I wasn't, I can't say that we were close buddies, but I was, you know, what, uh, you know. Yeah. When I was, well, as a radio guy, I'm like, you got to know Vin Scully, right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, and, uh, <laughs> and what was your guy in, in Detroit, the old time guy there that was there for years? Oh, and no. oh shoot. Cause I did really. I don't know. Uh, I, my memory is going to fail me there. Yeah. Sorry. I, I'm, I'm, I'm letting my entire city down. I apologize. Okay. okay. <laughs> uh, but, he, but he was awesome. Every time the Tigers would yeah. come in and, and. What we in baseball, what happens on the on the on the press level is they have a they put out a spread. There's free food for everybody covering the game, including the broadcasters. And so we all kind of come into like a small cafeteria at every stadium. It happens the same way. And I would go into the cafeteria and have an opportunity to sit down with these people that were the legendary broadcasters of their time, uh, Ernie Harwell. And, um, oh, that's, amazing. yeah, yeah. Okay. And, and just have a chat with them, you know, and just I'd pull up and get my tray and put my tray next to theirs because usually they were by themselves. Maybe they're going over some game notes or something and just strike up a conversation and get to know them. And the, the people of baseball are just uh, particularly the, the great historic announcers are wonderful people. They're just really good. Uh, and so passionate about not only their sport, but life and America and, and, you know, patriotism and spirituality. And they're just good people. Do you have a favorite story from your time in baseball? Um, I have a couple, but one of them is that uh, uh, we had this young young player. He was a shortstop. Um, um, he was uh, Dominican. And I can't even remember his name right now, but he had just come up and it was just in the big leagues. And, and we had a client function in Kansas City out in the, uh, beyond the outfield wall. And we had you know, snacks and refreshments and door prizes for best clients and whatnot. And so they're all milling about. And then a couple of players would get picked and we'd give them like $50 gift certificates to come out and sign a couple autographs before the game, right? So they came out before the game and I'm standing there with this young guy and he doesn't speak a lot of English. And I said, okay, tonight, and when I gave him the $50 gift card or whatever it was, I said, tonight you owe me. And he goes, what? I said, 
right here. I want a home run right here. And I pointed <laughs> to the seats down in the left field, the left field um, bleachers, right? And he goes, oh, yeah. I said, home run right here. Okay, we clear? And then he goes, yeah. And then I hand him the gift certificate, right? So we get in the game. And sure enough, you know what happened? He <laughs> hit a home run almost in the exact spot. And it was so special. After the game, I went down into the clubhouse, and he was just he was just grinning ear to ear because I, it might have been his first major league home run. But he was just so excited about it, and so was I. It was, it was a wonderful thing. I love those moments. They're just they're, it's bigger than sports, you know? Yeah. Uh, so I have to ask as well, I mean, with the storied career, you've written some books, so you've written two, you have one more on the way. So what are those books and how have they tied into your career arc and your personal life arc? I don't think they tie into my career a lot, although I have been a professional observer for most of my life because as a reporter or a news director or even a general manager and different situations and the things that I've seen and dealt with and the politicians and the celebrities and all that stuff. But the first one is called One Stupid Mistake. And it's a series of short essays about people making decisions. And pretty much as you read the story, some of them are from my personal life, but many of them are historical. I wrote one about Richard Nixon. As you're reading the story, and they're very, it's a short book, and the stories are short. As you read, you can see, ooh, this is probably not going to turn out well. Whether you know the story, how it ends, or you don't, or you've never heard of the person, it's like, okay. And the point of it is that we make 30,000 decisions every single day. Everything from chewing and swallowing food to significant decisions. And the point of, of the book is that when you, make, when you make sound decisions, smart decisions, correct decisions, worthwhile, holy decisions, if you want, in the small things, when it comes to the big things, you'll do the right thing. You'll make the right decision. But when you make a lot of small decisions and you go, ah, oh, nobody sees it, nobody knows, I'm, you know, I can cover it up, I didn't get caught or whatever, then when you get to the big things, you, those are the ones that tend to be life-changing. And for a lot of people, it's really the end of their existence. It, it just destroys them. So that was the first one. The second one is sort of a take, uh, is my, <laughs> my old guy pushback on social media. And one of the things that's <laughs> happened, it's called, when did you stop being you in search of your personal brand? And when did you stop being you is for all the people who think that they can project an image, an online image, and that's who they are. And there are, I don't know if you know this or not, but there are probably tens of thousands of personal branding experts in America. And if you go online and just put in personal branding expert, you get a list of them, right? So I did that, and I started going to their websites and reading their material, and they all say the same thing. Project a consistent image across all platforms. Okay, well, what is, what is that? That's project a consistent image. So I can pretend to be something, and as long as I'm consistent in projecting that image, that's my brand? And I said, no, that's false, because your brand is your values. Your brand is your ideals. Your brand is your beliefs. And so the, to be authentic, you have to be who you really are, who, who God made you, who you've always been, and, and be in touch with that person, not create some persona that you're trying to project. So, you know, you take pictures of your food or you do a lot of selfies, you know, you walk by a celebrity and say, hey, can I take a you know, selfie with you? Yeah, great. And you take a picture and post that online like that's somebody that you are because you're not. That has nothing to do with who you are. 
So when you're looking for authenticity in brands, look for people who are comfortable talking about their their beliefs and their values. I believe this. I believe that abortion is the greatest crime in the history of the world, and it's in our time. And we will be looked back as barbarians for for the, even the dialogue that's happening in our country right now about that subject. Completely agree. So you said you've interviewed celebrities, politicians, athletes, normal people, uh, criminals, uh, pretty much everyone. What is one thing that you've found that all of those people have in common? If you do the interview the right way, you can get at the core of who they are. You could get something out of them. I guess that's the most fun thing. I remember you said, you know, all the criminals, you said that I once interviewed the oldest inmate in the California prison system. And it was a guy who was like everybody else on death row at San Quentin. Um, you know, he was not guilty. You know, he, he, you were sure he was not guilty. He was convicted of um, murdering his wife and incinerating her body in the backyard barbecue. And this was pre, <laughs> pre-DNA. Pretty grisly. Yeah, yeah, pretty grisly, but it was pre-DNA. But at the time I got to him, he had already been in prison for about 40 years. So, you know, it was just like, okay, whatever. But... Um, but in talking to him, the first thing was, you know, da, da, da. And then I said, like, how do you survive in a place like this? How do you survive? And he got, he, he did the kind of the, you know, the monkey thing, see no evil, speak no evil, you know, kind of thing and be quiet. But then he, he, he uh, his, a little bit, he let a little bit of his soul show, you know, he let a little bit of himself, his remorse and, and, um, and I think that's the, that's the that's the one commonality. If you do it right, if you're if you're just a shill for them, and you ask the softball questions, the, you're going to get whatever their that image that they're trying to project is, whether it's a celebrity or whether it's a common person. But if you can find a way to to really get in touch with them, what you kind of what you're feeling from them, or as you look into their eyes, you know the eyes are a window to the soul. When you look into their eyes, are they are they with you? Are they being honest? Are they are these people of integrity, you know, or, or are they trying to shine you on or whatever? Um, I think the, the most poignant things are when you really touch people. And a lot of times I've, I've done interviews and have tears come to people's eyes because they go into that reflective mode and they start thinking about things in a, in a way that they don't think about them every day. And that's powerful. That is powerful. And this, this interview has been very inspirational to me personally, and this is going to be a selfish question, but I think a lot of people can help, can get a lot of information from it. Uh, what advice would you give to someone who wants to do journalism, news, start a program, interview people? What advice would you give to someone who's young looking to improve or looking to make their path? Become an active listener. Become, really hone your skills as an active listener. So you listen not just to the words, don't be thinking of what your next question is going to be necessarily, you know, at that, in that instance, really try to absorb everything that you're getting from that person. And then, you know, when you, if your BS meter goes off and, and you know, you're just getting it, then find a way to, to cut through it and, and push them back because we're all ostensibly trying to get at the truth, not to reinforce our own beliefs. So I, you know, I've interviewed people that are diametrically opposed to what I believe, morally, you know, atheists and, and some really bad people. But my, my goal as an interview is not, not to correct them or change them or to show them up. My goal as an interview is to expose them, really get them to tell 
their version of the truth and then trust that your audience is smart enough to be able to discern the difference. They'll know whether or not those people are worthy of following or not. Beautiful. Charlie, if people want to buy your books or learn more about you or stay in contact, follow you, how could they do that? Um, I have a website, which is charlieserafin.com, and that'll kind of take you to wherever you need to go. Um, but the books are available on Amazon only right now. They're, most bookstores don't cover them. The, they have wonderful reviews. They're both five-star reviewed books. So if you look up Charlie Serafin, author on Amazon, you should be able to get to them. And my, my next book is the one I'm most excited about and probably has the most relevance for, uh, for catholicboat.com, and that is Write Your Own Obituary. And the point of the book is that if you write your obituary, Tom, while you're young and healthy, long before <laughs> you plan to die, because we never know the day or the hour, right? Uh, okay. Correct. Okay. So if you write your, start writing your obituary really young, it's an examination of conscience. And that's the whole purpose of it, is to get people to really reflect on where they've been, because we all have errors and omissions. And so, gee, there's something in my life that I... As I'm writing out and, and answering the questions, and it's a guide, so it's real easy to follow along and, and uh, see where it's going. But as I'm, as I'm answering these questions, as I'm filling out my obituary form, I can see that I'm a little light in this area. I probably need to do a little fence mending over here, or there are some um, a, a, a admission of fault. You know, there are things that we do that we bury, and we go, oh, well, nobody knows, just me, but I... You know, I shouldn't have done it, but I did it, and oh well, I'm going to try to forget about it, or I never think about it. And it's really important to to think about not only our accomplishments, because we don't learn from our accomplishments, but our failures, because that's where we really learn and grow and get better. Okay, well, I'll have that linked. The two books that are out right now I'll have linked in the description. Keep an eye out for the new one. I got to start writing my obituary. Might need to tune up some places in my life. But Charlie, thank you so much for coming on the show. We really appreciate the time and. Hopefully we'll have you on again someday. I look forward to it, Tom, and thank you, and uh, God bless you, and God bless all of your viewers and listeners, and uh, let's everybody have a happy, holy day. 